Good morning, everyone. I'm Sarah Rudd, and I'm really thankful to be here today and thankful to uh, speak to you all. Um, it's a blessing. I appreciate uh, Kelly Joe's word about burdens and um, God wanting to take our burdens. I was talking with a group of people who were talking about the church, and they were sharing some of their burdens, some of their hopes and dreams and burdens for the church. And these were a few of the things they said. And they said a lot of things, but I was surprised how many were in this category. Um, they want to be part of a church that is welcoming of all walks. They want to be part of a church that can have tough conversations and we won't be judged. We want to be okay with being uncomfortable. Um, we want to not always expect a quick fix. And we want to discover ways to, to speak to diversity. And we want to learn tools for conflict resolution. So that's some people's hopes and expectations for the church. Later, I was talking with another friend who said, he's not on Facebook anymore. And I said, oh, why is that? And he said, there is just too much negativity from every side, too much negativity, I'm done. And I can relate to that. Um, the events that we've all been through the last season have amplified, right? That we see things differently, we process things differently, we have different values. And I know that when I face these tensions, you know, I can get overwhelmed. They can feel like a burden to me. And so I do my best to look to Jesus. And I say, Jesus, how did you navigate this? How did you respond to these tensions? When I think about Jesus, there's lots of stories about he related to that. But I want you, I'm going to list a bunch of his followers, not just the 12 but other followers that he had and other people he interacted with. And I want you to take a moment and say, what would these people look today look like today in my world? Who would this be for me today? So he had tradesmen like fishermen. He had Luke, the doctor. He had professionals. He had political radicals and zealots. He had religious leaders, people like pastors and bishops and scholars and theologians and influencers. He had Samaritans that he interacted with. They were ethnically other, considered religiously unclean. He had Judas in his inner circle, obviously a very wounded man. People knew he was a thief. Jesus knew he would betray them, and yet Jesus had him in a circle. Can you think of people like that in your life? Jesus had children in his life. He was really good with kids. He had lots of families in his life. He had Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, a family that he interacted with all the time. Of the 12 disciples, three were sets of brothers. Jesus invited very complicated family dynamics into his inner circle. And I say that because we know they were complicated because what family is not complicated? Come on. <laughs> right? And Jesus invited three sets of brothers in to the inner circle. There were tax collectors, questionable business practitioners. Joanna was one of his main supporters. She was married to a steward 
or a, a, a man who worked in Herod's household. Oh my goodness, who could that represent? And then the Roman military representatives, lots, centurions, soldiers, so forth and so on. Jesus had all these people in his life. On my good days, I say, I've got this. I'm like Jesus. I follow Jesus. I can handle all of this different stuff. And on my bad days, I'm like, I am not as kind or as patient or as perseverant or as smart as Jesus. I don't know how to do this. Today, I want to talk about one of his interactions with a Samaritan. And it's just one. And in it, I want to point us to Jesus because Jesus is our good shepherd. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is our guide. And as we learned last week, when we abide in the vine, we can produce good fruit, even in the middle of tensions and challenges around us. But I want to point us to Jesus. Remember when you learned to drive a car or when you were teaching someone else to drive a car? And we all know this analogy, right? We always tell the person driving, don't look at the person to your right or to the left. Don't even look at your steering wheel. No, don't even look at the, the lines right in front of you. You have to look way down the road, right, to, to where you're trying to get to in order to be a good driver. It's the same thing with Jesus. Corey Ten Boom says, if you look at the world, and she was a survivor of the Holocaust, so she went through some stuff. <laughs> she says, if you look at the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But if you look at God, you'll be at rest. Isn't that a good word? So we're going to look at Jesus and how he relates to someone. Fixing your eyes on Jesus isn't the popular way. It doesn't even seem very practical. Like, what on earth does it mean? It's a spirit thing. It's a hard thing to understand sometimes. It isn't an easy way, and it isn't a quick fix way. But it's a sure way. It's discipleship. It's abiding in Christ. And we can trust the Holy Spirit to lead us through unresolved tensions, through cultural differences, and even historic challenges that last eight centuries. So here we go. We're going to do a Bible history. We're going we're gonna to tell you about the Samaritan woman. I've recently done a Bible study with a woman, uh, by a woman named Christy McClellan. It's all online. And there's a lot of historical material I'm going to share that I got from her. Not all of it, but a lot of it was inspired by that study. And I just want to say her name to say thank you for that. Christy McClellan, I have no idea who you are, but it was a good study. I'm also have become lately really aware that a lot of people are listening who have no idea what the Bible says or the history of the Bible. And that's awesome. Here, we don't want to be like club basketball, where you have to know all this great stuff and be super good and try out for the team. That's not what we are. We're more like junior jazz. Anybody gets to play, right? So I'm going to give a little bit of history because this is junior jazz time with Jesus, okay? Um, I hope it's interesting for the rest of you, too. Uh, one of the questions that I've had recently from people who've never read the Bible is what's the difference between a Hebrew, Israelite, and Jew? So I'm going to real quick tell you a little bit about that. And the first part of the Bible 
we read stories about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham is often called the father of our faith. His descendants were the Hebrews. Years later, when Abraham's grandson Jacob has an encounter with God, God changes his name to Israel. So that's why you hear about Jacob and Israel. It's the same name. It might as well be Jacob, Israel. But God changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means to wrestle with God. The whole nation has the name to wrestle with God. Is that not an invitation that we get to wrestle with God? We don't have to have it all figured out. We're going to live in some tension because we're a people like them who wrestle with God. From Israel's sons emerged 12 tribes of Israel. They're known as the Israelites or the nation of Israel. Fast forward 800 to 900 years. <laughs> We're doing a quick history lesson. The sons and uh, the tribes of Israel live in all of these different places near Israel. There's 12 tribes. And 10 of the tribes, and King David is leading this nation King David's son Solomon follows, and then another son. And the rest of the sons are pretty awful leaders. And because they're so awful, the, the, it gets separated into two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom becomes the kingdom of Israel, and the bottom kingdom becomes the kingdom of Judah. This is about 700 years before Jesus is born. The kingdom is divided in two. What happens next is Assyrians come in and raid the north. And all the people who live, all the Israelites who live in the north, they intermarry with the Assyrians and they adopt their idolatry and they worship the Assyrian gods. And because of this, they become known as Samaritans. And this is where we get closer to our story, right? In the south, Babylon invades Judea. And the Judeans, or Jews, because they live in the south in Judea, they become known as the Jews, they're taken as exiles to Babylon. But after 70 years, some of them are allowed back to resettle in Jerusalem, and they come back to rebuild the temple. Okay, the, flop, the plot thickens. The flop pickens. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we're not quite ready for that map quite yet. Thank you, Grace. Initially, when the exiles come back, the Samaritans want to help Nehemiah and the returned exiles rebuild the temple. But the exiles who return say, no, you can't help us rebuild. You've mixed too much with those people up north. And then the, the Samaritans are hurt by this. And then they retaliate. And instead of helping build the temple, they actually resist the building of the temple. When the temple is finally done, the Jews say, you can't worship here. And now we see two divergent places of worship. The Samaritans build their own temple up north in Samaria on Mount Gerizim at a place near Jacob's, Israel's well. And in the south, we have the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem not only are there geographical differences and hundreds of years of rejection building up by the time Jesus comes, the Samaritans have only used five books of the Bible 
And the Jews have now history books and prophecy books and wisdom books and poetry books. And the Samaritans have added a new scripture to their five. It's called the Memar Marka. I'm probably saying it incorrectly. 130 years before Jesus is born, approximately, the animosity is so profound that the Jews from the south go up to Samaria and they burn the Samaritan temple to the ground. They destroy their place of worship. Not to be outdone, around the time that Jesus is born, this is how close this is to Jesus's time, around the time he's born, on the night before Passover, the ultimate religious holiday for the Jews, the Samaritans breach the temple walls and throw human bones into the temple grounds, desecrating it such that the Passover cannot even happen until the temple is ritually cleansed. In other words, Passover was not happening that year. Imagine this back and forth, back and forth of two people trying to destroy each other's worship. Sometimes we can feel like that today, right? Everyone's trying to do worship differently, and how should we worship? And we all, we're all ransacking each other's type of worship and criticizing each other's worship. And, oh, it's tense, and it's hard. This is how the Jews and the Samaritans treated each other, except so violent. I give you this historical context so you can see the world was just as challenging in Jesus's time as it is for us today. Jesus walked in to the same tensions, the same discomfort, the same back and forth, the same negativity. This is God with us, Emmanuel. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem near Judea in the bottom, or Jerusalem, down there at the bottom. But his family had to flee to Egypt and when they returned, they were afraid to return to Bethlehem because Herod had tried to kill them there. So they settled all the way, all the way up north in Galilee and Nazareth. But here's the challenge. Every time you want to worship in Jerusalem, you have to go through Samaria. People would often go around and sometimes they'd risk it and go through Samaria. Today's story is about a time when Jesus was journeying from Judea all the way back up to Galilee, and he stops at Jacob's well in that small town at the base of Mount Gerizim, where the temple where the Samaritans worship is. He stops there because he's hungry, and he's tired, and he's thirsty, and he asks his disciples, would you go into town and get some food for me? So they head into town and he's sitting there at the well and a woman sees him in the distance. It's about noon, she's coming to the well and she sees a man and as she gets closer, she sees he's a stranger. Oh my, he's, he's Jewish and she's alone. She doesn't have any friends with her. You know, typically women at that time, they would come in the morning with groups of friends when it was cooler, but this woman, it's safer for her to go. It's easier for her 
to go when nobody else is around. She'd rather endure the heat of the day than all of the other trouble. Why else was she alone? We don't know. As she gets closer, she can see he's not just a man, he's a Jew. And then she, she gets to the well and Jesus says, hey, will you give me a drink? She says, ah, uh, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? She knows that if a Jewish man drinks from a vessel that she's handled, he's going to be ceremonially unclean and that's going to be problematic. What are you, you know you can't do this. But Jesus replies and says, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Right here, something shifts for this woman. Because all of a sudden she knows, we're not just talking about a drink. He's talking with me about my Samaritan scriptures. Because in the Samaritan scriptures, she knows the words that say, in the depths of an abundant spring is the life of the world. Let us rise with understanding to drink from its waters. We thirst for the waters of life. There is a well of living water dug by a prophet whose like has not arisen since Adam, and the water which is in it is from the mouth of God. Wow. How does this Jewish man know my holy scriptures? Is that what he's referring to, or is he just talking about water? All of a sudden, she says, he might be a religious scholar. She starts to call him Sir. Sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? I love her sassiness. <laughs> who do you think you are? I'm not sure about you. <laughs> She's going to wrestle with this stranger. Keep in mind, in the cultural and religious traditions of that time, she's not even supposed to be talking to this man, let alone talking theology. And yet she's going to do it. Then he says, anyone who gives this water will soon become thirsty again. Who drinks this water but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again it becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them giving them eternal life please sir she says give me this water then I'll never be thirsty again and I won't have to come here to get water next Jesus is going to direct her away from theology and to her personally he's going to shift the conversation away from all this stuff up here, and he's going to meet her right where she's at. He says, go and get your husband. I don't have a husband, she replies. He says, yeah, you're right. You've had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You're telling the truth. Ouch. In the middle of all of these other issues, where you worship and um, living water and scripture, this teacher is cutting right through it all. And he wants to talk to me about my pain and my life. 
ouch. We don't know how she ended up in this place of pain, right? We don't know. All we know is that she's alone during the hottest part of the day. We know that five men have divorced her. And remember, again, that wasn't her choice because women had no choice with divorce. Only men had the right of divorce. So we don't know why they divorced her. You could divorce someone just because they did the meal wrong, but maybe they divorced her because she liked to talk theology. (laughs) Maybe she was sassy. Who knows? But she was in a lot of pain. She was intimately aware of the weight of her shame. And yet Jesus comes in and he acknowledges it and he wants to touch it. She redirects the conversation. Uh Uh-uh. Here's a good one. Here's something I know we can argue about. (laughs) You must be a prophet. Tell me why is it that Jews only think you can worship in Jerusalem, and while we Samaritans claim it's here at Mount Gerizim that we should worship, where our ancestors worshiped? I love it. Jesus does not take the bait. He's like, "Mm mm-mm. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. Excuse me. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus is offering this woman a new kind of worship. There's something new I want you to experience, woman, and it engages your spirit. This is what the Father is looking out for, people who will simply and honestly be themselves before him in worship. God is pure spirit. And those who worship him must do it out of their very innermost being, their spirits. And the woman says, I don't know about that. (laughs) I don't know about this. I do know that the Messiah is coming. And when he arrives, then we'll get the whole story. And then Jesus says, I am he. You don't have to wait any longer or look any further. McClellan says that this is the first time, point blank, that Jesus announces he is the Messiah. And he does this to a woman at a well in Samaria. Man, that's so awesome. Just then the disciples come back and they're shocked to see Jesus talking with this woman and she sees the look on their faces and she goes off running. She runs so quickly, she leaves her water pot behind. But soon enough, she goes back to her town and she tells everyone, come see a man who knew all the things I did and he knows me inside and out. Do you think this could be the Messiah? And they go and see for themselves. Jesus ends up staying in this town for two days, teaching them about his ways and the kingdom of heaven. 
Many Samaritans believed, it says, because of her word. Jesus restored her, and her word was believed. They believed because of her word, and they believed because of what he spoke. It happens sequentially in those verses. And this is what they decide. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. Jesus comes into this uncomfortable situation that has no quick fixes. He sits. He shows vulnerability. He's hungry. He's thirsty. He's weary. He asks for a drink. He's okay with the awkwardness. It doesn't stop him. He talks, he's at peace. He sees her as an individual. He sees her pain. He offers living water. When he walks into the room, he brings healing. When he comes to the well, he brings healing. And then he invites her to worship in a whole new glorious way spirit to spirit. This is God's heart. This is Jesus's way. I want to contrast this real quick to a couple other times with encounters with Samaritans. A few weeks later, months, years, I don't know. I don't have the timeline exact. Jesus is traveling through Samaria again, and the town does not welcome him. And James and John are furious, and they're like, let's call down fire from heaven and roast these guys. And Jesus looks at them, and he rebukes them, and he's like, guys, this is my own imagination. Guys, <laughs> don't you get it yet that we're not about burning people down and tearing them to the ground? And they just went to another town in Samaria. <laughs> in Luke 10, we hear the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a story about a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite who walk by a person who's been robbed and left for dead. And yet a Samaritan comes by and takes them and, and takes care of them. And it's a story that Jesus uses to illustrate that Samaritans can be examples for us. Samaritans Samaritans can be examples to us, and they're noteworthy. Another time, Jesus heals 10 lepers, but only one comes back to say thank you, and it's a Samaritan. In Jesus' world, he reminds us that the Samaritans are noteworthy, and they're invited into worship. Like the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Romans, and the disciples of Jesus' time, we're sitting in a lot of discomfort, a lot of conflict, culturally. But I'm encouraging you to look up and see who God is right now. Our Messiah, our Christ Jesus, this is how he treats us. He reaches out to us and speaks to us even when we have histories of violence and rejection. There were hundreds of years of rejection between the Samaritans and the Jews. And yet Jesus comes in and he reaches past that rejection. 
He wants to drink after us. He treats us as clean, even when we're unclean. He names our pain and sits with us in it. He respects us and wants to talk about worship with us. He wants to be the savior for us. And he wants to make us reliable and effective witnesses for him. He wants to redeem our stories. I want to finish with a story by a writer named Heather King. She works for a really liberal media outlet. She's a recovering alcoholic who has come to faith in Christ. And she wants to reflect on her initial experience with church. And then this is her first reaction. She says, my first impulse was to think, my God, I don't want to get sober and I don't want to worship with these nutcases or boring people or people with different politics or taste in music, their food, their books, whatever. Nothing, she says, shatters our egos like worshiping with people we did not handpick. The humiliation of discovering that we are thrown in with extremely unpromising people. <laughs> That's who we are. People who are broken, misguided, wishy-washy, out for themselves. People who are us. But we don't come to church to be with people who are like us in the way we want them to be. We come because we have staked our souls on the fact that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Yes. <laughs> and the church is the best place, the only place to be while we struggle to figure out what that means. We come because we'd be really hard pressed to say which is the bigger of the two scandals of God that he loves us or that he loves everyone else. I want to invite you today to worship Jesus, to look beyond the right or the left and the tensions and discomfort of today, to look down the road, to see Jesus at the well, Bring your pain to him, to open up your spirit to Jesus, the living water. And you have a choice. It's your choice. You can respond to Jesus as a man. You can respond to Jesus as a teacher. You can respond to Jesus as a prophet. Or can respond to him as the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So I'd like to just close with prayer. Thank you, Jesus, so much for your love for us. And thank you so much for your love for everyone else. Thank you that this is a place that we can come together
from all our different places, all our different perspectives, and we come to drink of living water, to eat the bread of life, to sit with the shepherd of our souls. Today, I open up my spirit to you and I say, pour out your living water. Help me worship you in spirit and in truth. Spirit to spirit, not on this mountain or that mountain or this way or that way. But open up our spirits today. I give my spirit to you so that I can worship you in spirit and in truth. In the name of Jesus, amen.